Good morning, everybody. It's so wonderful to come together and serve a faithful God, a God of beauty, a God of creation. I think today of some of the flowers that are blooming in fall, some of them are starting to die away. I wonder, what is your favorite flower? Which flower do you think is the most beautiful? Why don't you take a moment, if you're sitting next to somebody, and just tell them... What's your favorite, most beautiful flower in your opinion? Go ahead. Some of you wives may be reminding your husbands right now, maybe. Favorite flower? I think for me, my, the, the flower I find the most beautiful is the sunflower which I tried all week to keep this thing alive, and, and here it is. Did you know that the sunflower is uh, native to North America? In fact, um, some evidence suggests that uh, Native Americans were the first ones to sort of uh, work with these, uh, maybe even cultivated them as early as 3000 BC. Some archaeologists think that the sunflower was domesticated before corn, if you can believe it. And I just love uh, sort of the picture of them, the beauty of them. They grow fast, of course. They grow tall, sometimes 8 to 12 feet tall over a a period of only about six months. In fact, the the Guinness Book World Record for the tallest sunflower, get this, 30 feet, 1 inch, grown in Germany a few years ago. Largest sunflower head is 32 and a quarter inches in diameter, if you can imagine that. And, and maybe my favorite Guinness World Record is the number of people dressed as sunflowers. Uh, 938 students of St. Catherine's High School did it in Malta last year. I find sunflowers remarkable. Um, they, they follow the movement of the sun, at least their leaves do, from east to west in a, pr- a process known as uh, heliotropism. They follow the sun. And so they have become a symbol of faith and loyalty. We are together uh, in the fourth week of our series called Allegiance, where we're talking about faith and and have been trying over the last several weeks to to kind of uproot some of the small, even poison views of faith that can kind of pop up in culture all around us and discover like a true, rich, beautiful, saving faith in God. As Paul wrote about, for instance, in Ephesians, when he says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Well, what is that, that saving faith that Paul talks about? And uh, during this series, you know, we've talked a little bit about some of the phantom faiths we're tempted to buy into. Um, we talked a few weeks ago about the full gospel story that calls faith out from us. We, we talked uh, about loyalty as a part of faith. And uh, even last week, we saw some faith in action when the stewards came from Kenya to describe what they're up to uh, as, as our mission partners. And if you missed any of that, you can catch up, of course, uh, on our website. But if you'd like to uh, dig deeper into this, uh, there's a book for sale at our inter- information center called Salvation by Allegiance Alone by Dr. Matthew Bates. You want to pick that up and read more deeply into that. That's available to you as well. Dr. Bates will actually be with us next week to talk more about these things. But in the meantime, I want to ask this question. What does it look like to have a three-dimensional, a fully beautiful, saving faith in King Jesus? Let me use uh, this image of a sunflower again. Do you know what is ironic about a sunflower? 
Helianthus is the scientific name. Helia meaning sun, anthus meaning flower. Do you know what's ironic about the sunflower? It's the only flower with flower in its name. But it's not actually a flower. It's technically hundreds, if not thousands, of flowers in one. All those little uh, typically brown spots are all these parts in the, the disc florets they're called in the middle of the... They're all each individually a flower. So uh, listen, husbands, I'm trying to save you lots of money. You can grab one of these today, take it home to your, your wife and say, Honey, I've gotten you thousands of flowers right here for your enjoyment. Sunflower is lots of flowers combined into one. In the same way, I want to talk a little bit about saving faith, how it has multiple dimensions combined into one. Let me mention those uh, three of those this morning. One, of, uh, one aspect, one dimension of faith is uh, what I'll call intellectual agreement. Anytime the Bible talks about salvation or it talks about faith with that little uh, Greek word pistis, it, it originally it at least includes a mental agreement that the gospel is true to reality. Uh, now, let me be clear on this. Although you can believe certain facts about Jesus and not uh, result in salvation, believing certain facts about Jesus is at least the beginning part of that process. And so in order to experience the beauty of salvation and a new life in God, there is uh, a necessity that we acknowledge the gospel as true. We talked about some of these elements uh, a couple of weeks ago. Let's rehearse this list together with you. That Jesus the King first uh, preexisted with the Father. You know, in the beginning, John says, was the Word. And second, Jesus took on human flesh, fulfilling God's promises to David. The Word became flesh, John 1.14. Or in 1 Corinthians 15, so much of this, that Jesus died for sins in accordance with the Scriptures or uh, was buried, was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, appeared to many as seated at the right hand of God as Lord and will come again as judge. See, if a, if a person, if you can affirm these statements as true, that they point to real, historic, even cosmic events, then that person agrees intellectually with the gospel of Jesus. They're in the right, they're creating a right environment for saving faith to flower. Now, you see some of this mental aspect of things, even in John's writing. Uh, in the Gospel of John, for instance, in chapter 2, Jesus does this incredible miracle where he changes water into wine. And the disciples, as they're reflecting on this, John, later as he reflects on it as writing this, uh, frames the story this way. He says in verse 11 of chapter 2, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This miracle was performed by Jesus, and it was a sign pointing to a reality beyond just water and wine. The wine was interesting, but what is more interesting is the winemaker and what he's up to. And it says that when the disciples saw this, it pulled back the curtain of who Jesus is, and it says they believed in him. That is, they had this uh, mentally, they took it in, they agreed that Jesus is who he says he is. Or at the end of John's gospel, this mental side of faith is also shown as a motivation for his writing the whole gospel. He says this in chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's, just, there's something necessary about that mental side of faith, about agreeing that this is true. Now, it's possible you're thinking, 
I don't know, Brooks. I, I'm not sure I've actually consciously thought through like each of those bullet points on that list a minute ago. And uh, I, I don't know. So does that mean I'm not saved if I haven't thought through that or agreed with that exactly? Uh, does everyone have to commit that specific outline to memory and sign on the dotted line somewhere? And the answer to that is no. I hope you take some comfort in these words from Titus 3. I, I want to just kind of frame all of this discussion with the God that we're talking about here. At one point, or at one time, Paul writes, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. Do you hear that? We serve a God who is kind, who is loving, a God who is generous, who has spared uh, no expense in giving his own son for our salvation. So when we think about some of the mental side of the gospel that we need to imagine, that we need to grasp, it may not be that we have it all figured out. These are not boxes to check off. I like the image uh, Matthew Bates uses. He talks about this like it's the mental furniture of the gospel. You know, all those eight statements. He said, you may have accepted all of the gospel house without recognizing or specifically talking about each piece of furniture within it. And that's okay. Or to imagine again the sunflower, maybe uh, you've grasped the beauty of the whole flower, but you didn't exactly know about all the tiny little flowers inside. And that's okay. Thanks be to God that our salvation is not dependent upon our intellectual grasp of everything that the gospel entails. But here's the shape of it. If you are intellectually confident enough to put your allegiance in King Jesus, then you are believing the gospel. That's the mental side of faith, to believe the story of Jesus is true. A second dimension of faith is what I'll call a confession of loyalty. Again, when the Bible talks about faith, there, it, just, it talks about this professed devotion to Jesus as the universal Lord. Look at Romans chapter 10. It'll be up on the screen this morning. Um, here Paul is kind of sketching the difference between living a right life with God according to the law and living a right life with God according to faith. And here's what he says. He says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe, that is to, to give pistis, to give allegiance in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Now notice something here, that Paul, um, for faith for him is, merely, uh, is not merely mentally agreeing to the facts of the gospel. There's something about declaring this with your mouth, about confessing loyalty to King Jesus that's a part of this. In fact, the verb Paul uses for declare or profess is a, a Greek term, homo logeo. Let me hear you say homo logeo. Homo logeo means uh, a public declaration. In fact, you just homo logeoed when you said homo logeo in public. Congratulations. 
At a deeper meaning, it means to profess openly or declare openly your allegiance to someone. So for Paul, this word in this place is something different than merely praying silently in your heart to accept Christ or raising your hand with every head bowed and every eye closed. That's a different idea in Paul's mind here. It's a public declaration. He envisions a a verbal statement of confidence. Think about a wedding for a second. You know, you stand on the stage, the the bride comes down, the groom meets her, they stand somewhere on the stage, and the officiant usually turns to the groom first with the wedding pledge, you know, do you promise to love her, honor her, you know, keep her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others to be faithful to her so long as you both shall live? I don't think anybody in the crowd of witnesses would applaud a groom who just silently believed that in his heart. No, we want to hear him say it. I do. There's something significant about saying that. Or think about baptism, which is a statement of loyalty to Jesus. We usually offer something like that when somebody says, you know, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then they go down into the waters of baptism, you know, uh, symbolizing the, the death with Jesus itself and coming out of the waters of baptism into his new life. When you come out dripping wet, there's no hiding your loyalty. You've publicly declared it, that Jesus is Lord. That's the same confession of loyalty we see in Luke 12, where Jesus uses that same Greek word when he says, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. Saving faith, this this allegiance we're talking about in Jesus, has has its foundation of public declaration that he is Lord. Confessing loyalty is another dimension of faith, like flowers within a flower. But speaking of sunflowers, did you know that the famed artist uh, Vincent van Gogh never sold a single sunflower portrait that he painted? He painted 11 during his lifetime. Almost starved in the making of all 11 of them. But now one of those hangs in the National Gallery in London... And it uh, is the inspiration for a postcard there that they sell more postcards of that portrait than any other portrait in their gallery. It's famous. But uh, there's also a problem. You see, the sunflowers on Van Gogh's portrait are wilting. This is actually a, a true story. He used paint which degrades under light. Now, most of it is uh, un, unable to be viewed uh, by the human eye at this point, but you can start to to tell some of that. Uh, But I hope you feel the irony here. Van Gogh's once hidden but now very public famous painting of sunflowers wilts in the light. I want to be honest with you this morning. I'm just going to ask you this question. Does your loyalty, does your loyalty to Jesus like the light? Or does your loyalty, your faith in Christ wilt under public scrutiny. You see, I think these days, you know, having faith in Jesus, being a follower of Jesus is becoming less and less popular in our culture at large. And I think people, uh, for, for so many of us, so many people just as soon sort of hide their faith away in the dark recesses of the gallery of their heart. Maybe it feels like your loyalty to Jesus would degrade if it came out in the light of day. But that secrecy is, is not faith. Faith is... Is, is publicly confessing that Christ is your Lord. 
It's professing with your mouth that he is Lord. In fact, I wonder this morning if you would be so bold as to publicly declare in this space that little phrase, Jesus is Lord, together with me. If you would do that, just say it with me, would you? Jesus is Lord. That confession is a part of our faith. One more dimension that I'll mention about saving faith is what's called embodied loyalty. This idea of faith requires enacted loyalty through obedience to Jesus the King. It's an act of devotion to Jesus as a part of his kingdom now. Now, this is where it gets a little sticky for us because we often think of faith as a one-time transaction. We think of faith sometimes like going to a concert, you know, to see a musician. Sometimes we think of uh, of faith as securing the music ticket. You know, it's a one-time transaction where we come before God and we say something or we do something and God gives us the ticket of salvation, the ticket to heaven, and then it's done. But the truth is, what happens with the ticket, what happens in the concert, is all part of the experience. And so a three-dimensional faith is not just believing the facts about Jesus and not just saying something out loud. It's about living out loyalty and letting it do its transformational work in you day in and day out. Again, look at this statement from Paul to Titus in Titus 3. Uh, He said, God, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit when he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. Now, look at what he says. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. You see the connection between trust and action? These, are th- these things are excellent and profitable for everyone. There, there's a connection between what we do with this faith and the, the faith we believe and speak of. Again, in John, these two things between faith and obedience are closely aligned. John says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And then he goes on to say, whoever rejects the Son, literally whoever uh, disobeys the Son, will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. That little verb for rejects means the willingness or refusal to comply to the demands of the authority. The the, the parallel here is, is clear for John. Whoever has allegiance to Jesus has life. Whoever has disobedience to Jesus has wrath. So in John's thinking, the opposite of faith is not works. Or good deeds, the opposite of faith is disobedience to Jesus. Clearly, faith is bound up with obedience. It's a loyalty that's lived out in everyday life. You see some of this in Paul's writing as well. Romans 1, he describes Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace, he says, and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Or you hear it in Paul's blessing in in Romans 16. He says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. To the only wise God through Jesus Christ be glory forever. Again, Dr. Bates summarizes, he says, professed allegiance is not sufficient. The allegiance must be realized by genuine, although not perfect, obedience. Maybe think of it this way. Did you know that uh, sunflowers 
are used to clean up nuclear radiation sites. Did you know that? After Hiroshima, after uh, Fukushima, after Chernobyl, uh, sunflowers were planted. Sometimes fields of sunflowers were planted around those areas to uh, help absorb the toxic metals and radiation from the soil. Sunflowers are called hyperaccumulators. And they're able uh, to pull from their incredible root system uh, high concentrations of of toxic materials. They can pull in lots of nutrients, lots of water, uh, lots of minerals. Things like copper and zinc and other radioactive elements are then brought into the flower, stored in their stems. In fact, they think that an entire field can be neutralized from radioactive radioactive material uh, within three years of planting sunflowers. So these flowers don't just look pretty. They change the world. How about your faith in Jesus? Sunflowers bring health into a world of toxins. Uh, They bring beauty into a world, a landscape of meltdown. They, They redeem a new area for life. Would your neighbor say the same thing about your faith in Jesus? Does your faith in Jesus bring health into a a toxic environment? Does your faith in Jesus bring beauty into uh, dysfunction? Do do people around you lead better lives because of the faith coursing in you? Are your your kids or your grandkids headed in a different uh, pathway in life because of the faith that's embodied in what you do and say every day? Let me use the quote from Rick from that old movie, Casablanca. Does your faith in Jesus mean a hill of beans in this crazy world? A three-dimensional faith does. Now, maybe by now I wonder if you believe that the sunflower is actually the most beautiful flower in the world. I've tried as best as I can to give you all the true facts that I know about the sunflower this morning. I wonder if you believe now that it is the most beautiful. And if you do, I wonder if you'd say it out loud that the sunflower is the most beautiful. Publicly and consistently, it is the most beautiful flower. And if you did say that, and if you did believe it, I wonder if you'd live it out. I wonder if you'd go home this afternoon and plant one. Probably indoors this time of year. I wonder if you'd spend your year thinking about how to plant it and harvest it. And I wonder if you'd use its seeds and its oil. And and I wonder if you'd uh, reorganize your whole life around taking care of it. You'd hang pictures of it in your house. You'd tell others about it. I, I doubt you'll do that. But what about King Jesus? Do you believe that he lived and died, that he was resurrected, that he reigns, that he's coming again one day? Do you believe that's true to reality? Do you believe that is true? And if you do believe it's true, would you say that? Would you publicly acknowledge it? Would you, would you wade into the waters of baptism to publicly declare to everybody that Jesus is Lord? And if that's true, would you go home this afternoon and reorient your whole life around that fact? Would you create time in your busy schedule to pray to this king, to, to read his word, to tell others about him and what he's doing in the world and in your life? Would you spend time around this church family in worship? Would you spend time around your table in fellowship with others? Would you stop rebelling against his word and start walking in step with his spirit? Would you trust and obey? It's a beautiful life that this king is calling us to. All we have to do is follow the sun. Would you pray with me?
God, you are our king. You are first before us, gracious and kind and merciful and loving, and we only respond to that. But Lord, help us to respond with our total allegiance to you. With what we think and what we say and what we do. King Jesus, may you be the center. Where we have failed you, Father, we confess our guilt and we seek your mercy and we seek to start a new day of following after you. It's in the name of our King Jesus that we pray. Amen.